It's good, to, it's good to be here. We've been away this week, as Timothy alluded to um, earlier on. It was lovely to, to get away and have that time together, but it's always lovely to come back and to see friends and to be back in church as well. We, we can honestly say we, we missed church last week, and um, it's, it's good to be back here this week. And this week, we're, we're beginning a new series. Now, we sort of bled into it in the, in the last sermon that I preached before we went away, um, uh, where we, we, we sort of crept into the Beatitudes. And we looked at the, the first Beatitude where Jesus says, um, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we, we considered the circumstances of the lady who, who came to Jesus in the middle of a feast that had been put on for him. And we looked at the way that actually he was being treated quite disrespectfully by his host. Um, and this, this lady who, um, tradition... Um, suggests that she was a, a prostitute. Um, she came in, she knelt at the feet of Jesus, she washes his feet, and she treats him with, with absolute respect and absolute in the highest regard. Um, well, this, this week we begin a new series, and the title of it, I just want to explain the title of it, because when you see Be Yourself... These days, it kind of it means a license to, to be whatever, to be whoever, to, to do whatever, and that everybody can just do everything they like and it's all fine. But actually, that's not where I'm going with this. Where I'm going with this, I've put yourself in brackets, is because actually, when we look at ourself, what, what does it mean to be yourself? Well, actually, whether we like it or not, all of us, each and every one of us, are a product of the people that we've met, the influences that have touched our lives, um, the role models that we've aspired to, 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 to imitate, the experiences that we've had in life, um, good and bad, the, the places we've been, the people we've seen, the things we've done, all of these things, they form us. The things we've been taught, the things we've listened to, the things we've rejected, all of these things, they, they form what, what, we, what we end up meaning when we say, be yourself. None of us, none of us exist in a bubble. None of us are completely untouched by any influence. So when we say, be yourself, we first have to know what, what it means to be ourself. Now, of course, we have a say in that. We, we, are, we are given this wonderful thing called free will, and we can decide um, uh, what influences we, we want to allow to make an impact on us and to shape us as, as people. The fact that we're here in church this morning, rather than sunning ourselves out on a, in a park somewhere or laying on the beach or whatever you might be doing this afternoon, the fact that we're here this morning suggests that we want Jesus to be a significant impact on ourselves. And so I've put the word yourself in brackets there because hopefully as we go through this series, as we, as we delve into the Beatitudes and learn a bit more about the Beatitudes and the significance that they have for our lives today, then the concept of ourself for each individual person here will be impacted by Jesus and that actually our attitude, our life attitude will come to be a little bit more in line with, with Jesus. That's, that's my hope and my prayer for this, this series. And I'm, I'll be honest with you, when I first came to faith and I heard people talking about the Beatitudes as if they were this amazing teaching and I read them and I was a bit underwhelmed. I know, 
I was a bit underwhelmed because I didn't understand them. Because they just seemed to be, they didn't seem to make sense. They didn't seem to make any sense. They were just these, these short, pithy, punchy little statements which were, Jesus said them and then he moved on and there was no explanation and no unpacking of them. He didn't clarify what he meant. And I didn't really get anything from them. Now, I find them some of the most powerful words that I've ever read. So, today we're going to look at the second of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, just to give a bit of context, Jesus was preaching. This, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, is where we get a huge chunk of Jesus' teaching from. When he, he, he stood, and um, Scripture says that he was up on a mountainside, probably overlooking the Sea of Galilee, um, in a sort of um, mountainous territory where um, political rebels and revolutionaries, people who were wanted for certain crimes, they often used to hang out. Um, it, was, it was a known sort of bandit country, if you like. Um, it was harsh terrain, but people travelled through. And Jesus is there, and Scripture also tells us that a crowd gathered. Now, this crowd would have been made up of people who were no stranger to mourning. This was a society, a time when disease was rife. There was a lot of illness around. It was a time when there was a lot of conflict. Men would go off to war and not come back. And there wouldn't be repatriation of bodies or anything like that. They just simply wouldn't be seen again. Infant mortality rates were high. And so when Jesus speaks to a crowd and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, this was not an alien concept. There would have been people in his, in his crowd, in his audience, in his congregation, whatever word you wish to use, people in front of him listening to these words who would have been right there, right then, in a state of mourning, in a state of grief and sadness. Maybe just that morning they had heard bad news or maybe they were waiting and waiting and waiting for the son or the brother or the husband to return from war and they've been waiting now for two or three years and they were beginning to lose hope. Or maybe they were watching the child wasting away knowing that it wasn't going to make it past another couple of weeks. This was a this was a very direct statement. And I know that today in church, there are people who are mourning. There will be people who have lost loved ones during the past couple of years due to the pandemic, or maybe you lost loved ones um, that you weren't able to go and see during the pandemic. Maybe you've had that, that heartbreak of, of not being able to say a final goodbye to, to a parent or to somebody who you held dearly, and that hurts. And Jesus gives us this bizarre statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, happy are the sad. What a ridiculous statement. 
What a ridiculous, crazy, nonsensical, illogical statement. You just wouldn't say it and expect to be taken seriously. But Jesus said it and expects it to be taken deadly seriously. Because actually, in this statement, there is a depth that brings us closer to Jesus, brings us closer to the Father, which is so easy to miss when we first read these words. I certainly missed the depth. We're going to have a look at a scripture about someone who would probably, before they began the story of their life that is recorded in scripture, who probably would have read that statement, shrugged and said, okay, fair enough. It wouldn't have meant anything. It wouldn't have had any, any real impetus. We're looking at the book of Job. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of Job. Others won't. But Job is it's a fascinating story. We're not going to go through the whole book because it's, it's 42 chapters long. But the book of Job begins... And we're told some information about Job. And we're told the sort of information that we, that we like to hear because whether we like it or not, we are all judgmental in some way. If somebody pulls up outside in their Ferrari and walks in in their Armani suit and they're just oozing wealth, then we make a judgment whether we like it or not. They're successful, they're wealthy, Maybe they're fortunate, maybe we resent them, but we make some sort of a judgment. In the same way, if somebody walks in and they clearly haven't, haven't washed in weeks and they, 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 they smell and they're filthy and, and they are in a terrible state, then we form a judgment as well. They're, they're not wealthy, they're desperate. And maybe we feel pity, maybe we want, we want to offer charity. It's a very different judgment that we draw. And, and scripture, scripture has that information for us. We can form a judgment on who, what we think of Job. So first of all, it says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So, you know, we'd accept him into membership at NCBC. Yeah, he sounds right, doesn't he? He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. This guy has wealth, make no mistake. This guy is a, is a shrewd businessman. This guy has, he has, he has a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. This is someone with a lot of wealth. And then it all begins to go wrong. This guy is so God-fearing that we see this very bizarre moment when we're told that God and Satan almost make a deal. Satan claims to be able to corrupt anybody on earth, says that actually, Lord, you, you don't have all the power you think you have. There is nobody who has absolute faith in you. I can corrupt anybody at any time in any way that I like. And so they decide to identify one person who will be the sort of the subject of this moral examination. And poor old Job is chosen. Now sometimes you think to be chosen by God would be a wonderful thing, a massive privilege, a real honour. You wouldn't trade places with Job. You see, by the end of chapter 1... 
His house has blown down. It's been destroyed by a storm. Um, his children were in the house. His family are, are dead except for his wife. Um, by the end of chapter 2, his health has failed. He's in, he's in a terrible state. And his faith is being tested. So much so, his wife says to him um, in chapter 2, verse 9, are you still maintaining your integrity? Really? Are you, are you sure? You, you, you're, not, you're losing your marbles. Curse God and die. You curse God, just give up. Don't keep, keep on keeping on. Just, just give up. God's obviously abandoned you. It's time for you to abandon God. But Job doesn't. Job goes through a whole series of challenges, a whole series of tests, a whole series of, of questions, people questioning his faith. But Job... He suffers. He suffers awful things. But through his suffering, his relationship with God deepens. It deepens to such a level that, that by the end of the book of Job, this man who at the beginning was described as God-fearing, who shunned evil, so he's a pretty, he was a pretty godly man, we'd, we'd say, yeah, you know, he's, he's got his faith, that's great. But by the end of it, Job says, my ears had heard you way back when I still had all those things. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, that beatitude suggests that actually in our mourning, in our suffering, in the deepest, darkest, most painful moments of our existence, that is when we meet with God. We meet with the God who is described in 2 Corinthians as the God of all comfort, the Father of compassion. He meets with us in our lowest moment. He meets with us in our time of despair, in our time of trouble. Ernest Hemingway was once... Um, well, the story goes, it's a good story, so I'm going to go with it. The story goes that Ernest, Ernest Hemingway was once um, having, having lunch with a group of fellow authors. And Hemingway um, was, it was talking about economy of words. And one of them said, I'll wager you $10 that you can't come up with a story in six words. And the other authors around the table all said, yeah, $10, there you go, there you go, there you go. Yeah, I'm in. And Hemingway took the bet. He said, okay, um, six-word story. He took a napkin, wrote some words, turned a napkin over on the table, took the money. One of the other authors picked up the napkin, and on it was written, a six-word story for sale baby shoes, never worn. Now, of course, that in itself is not a story, but those words, for all of us, will conjure up different stories. In those six words, we can, our, our minds immediately start to create a narrative. For a lot of people, that's a narrative which is pretty sad. Not necessarily. It could simply be a gift that was ne wasn't, wasn't wanted, a gift that was then just sold on. 
But often we, we kind of see something deeper than that. We see something quite painful in there. And Hemingway argued that actually everybody has a six-word story. We all go through um, a time in life when life is a dream. It's wonderful. Things are going well. Work's good. Family's good. Friendships are good. Everything's okay. And then suddenly we wake up from that dream in a startling, stark, immediate sense of pain and uh, devastation. Things begin to go wrong and unravel around us. And in those moments, we experience our own our own six-word story. I've got some examples that I'd like to give you, and I'm sure that you, um, hopefully as you, as you go away later on, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to find your own six-word story. Your job is no longer needed. That's a six-word story of a friend of mine who got made redundant. The cancer hasn't responded to treatment. I just don't love you anymore. The other driver had been drinking. Take a flower from the coffin. These are all six word stories. They're so simple, but in such a small number of words, there is a narrative that is so much deeper, so much stronger. Now, I'm not here to speak about literature, but Jesus had a way with words as well. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This wasn't just a short, snappy statement. This was a promise. This was a promise that for all of us, not just the people there on the mountainside that day, but for all of us that have read these words ever since, we have that promise, that assurance from God that in our lowest moments, in our most painful times, we will be comforted. Of course, sometimes we try and comfort ourselves. For some people, we, we, we comfort ourselves through drink or through endless partying or through constant holidaying so we don't have to face the reality of home, or maybe through, through shopping, retail therapy. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't pretend that everything's fine. Don't bottle everything up. Don't, don't, don't make out that, that yourself, when you be yourself, it's all happy and rosy and fine and great, because I know, I know it's not. Instead, face Face your sadness, face your grief, mourn, and in your mourning, I will meet with you. I will be with you. You will not be alone. Job is closer to God at the end of his story, at the end of his suffering. He'd heard about God before. He'd heard the, the scriptures. He'd heard um, the, the prayers at the temple. He'd seen the sacrifices. He, 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 knew, he knew the head knowledge, but by the end of his suffering, at the end of his painful time, he's seen God. He's seen God in his suffering. He's had that comfort, and God brings him through and restores Job. So this beatitude, it doesn't say... Blessed are you when things go your way. Or blessed are you when your, your dreams come true. No. It says, 
Blessed are you who mourn. So if you've come here this morning feeling a bit low, feeling a bit empty, feeling a bit miserable, then you don't need to put on the face. You just need to put on Jesus. You just need to come before God. The, the Greek word for mourn that Jesus used, the Greeks had many, many words for mourning, and this one is kind of the, the starkest, the most, um, the most evocative. It, it, it suggests an unstoppable flood of tears just pouring out. It suggests being broken by grief. This isn't just feeling a bit miserable because your football team lost. This is, this is proper, proper grief. And that's where Jesus meets us. But of course, there's another, there's another, there's another um, angle to this beatitude. Because... What if we flip this around? What mourns the heart of God? What is it that, that mourns the heart of God? Anybody got any, any suggestions? What mourns the heart of God? Rejection, being rebellious to his word. Injustice. Unfaithfulness. And what's the word that kind of covers all these things? The, 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 the reason why Jesus came into the world and died on that cross? Sin. Sin is the thing that, that, that grieves the heart of God, that causes God to mourn, that saddens him more than anything. Sin is one of those words which is it's very church, isn't it? It's very preachy. Sometimes when you're, when you're, when you're preaching, you... There are certain words that you almost don't want to use because you know that the only place that they'll be used is, is in the pulpit. But there's a danger there that we kind of water it down. Instead of talking about our sin, which is our, our personal offence to God, instead we water it down and we might talk about our, our transgressions, our mistakes, our dropping the ball, our little moments... We water it down. But sin is not a dirty word. Sin is a reality. If we, don't, if, we, if we pretend that we haven't got sin in our life, then we don't need Jesus. And we do need Jesus. Sin is something that we should confront. We don't hide it away in the darkness. We bring it out into the night, light and say, Lord, I am sorry. I am mourning. I am mourning my sin. Because what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not they will be abandoned, not they will be reprimanded and disciplined and kicked out of the kingdom because how dare they? No. Because that's not our God. Our God is a God of love, a God of comfort. He knows our weaknesses, He knows our failings. And when we come before Him, so long as we do come before him with honesty and openness, an openness of heart that acknowledges that when we are being ourself, we sin, then we are comforted. In Psalm 32, we have this wonderful moment where David, the poet, the psalmist, the harpist, the king, the murderer, the adulterer, 
the liar. David talks about sin. He says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in in whose spirit is no deceit. David's talking about, about this wonderful release that has come when he's confessed his sin before God. Now, this was a painful time. David had had his best friend murdered because he'd slept with his best friend's wife. She'd given birth to a child. And David had lied and covered up and refused to confront his sin until he was put in a difficult spot and he was confronted. But listen to this psalm. David goes on. When I kept silent... So when I tried to cover up my sin and pretend it wasn't there and make excuses and move on, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Apt. So David says says that when, when we don't confess our sin, there is a physical weight upon us. It saps our strength. It's this constant burden that we carry around and it it, it does us in. It does us in. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. We know in our minds, we know that we've got to bring something before God. We've got to humble ourselves. And he says, my strength was sapped. This was, this was a warrior king. This was someone who, who would go into battle and front it out against the enemy. This was in a day where, where when wars were fought, leaders were on the front line. David was no pathetic, puny leader who sat in his palace and let others do the dirty work. David wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty and bloody. But when he didn't confess his sin to God, his strength was sapped. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now make no mistake, in that moment when he was confessing his sin to the Lord, he would have been on his knees, he would have been sobbing before God, he would have been mourning in every, every sense of that Greek word that Jesus himself used. David would have been mourning. And he recognises that through that act, the guilt of his sin was forgiven. So what's David's message for us? Well, it's quite clear. He says, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they'll not come to you. In other words, don't be stupid. (laughs) Don't be a bunch of idiots, is what he's saying to us. Don't be like the horse or the mule that have no understanding. Have understanding of the importance of confessing your sin to God. 
Have understanding of, of not just confessing, but taking it seriously. Mourning. Now, I'm not saying that we should be in a, in a constant state of mourning, miserable and downcast and beating ourselves. No, 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 no. That is not what our Creator God wants for us. Our Creator God, who created the world in all its glory and all its beauty, He does not want us to be living in a constant state of misery and depression, giving ourselves a kicking for who we are. No, He doesn't. But He also doesn't want us to be going around in this beautiful, wonderful world that He's created for us, knowing that we've got a strength-sapping burden that we are carrying. He wants us instead to regularly talk to him. Our God, who loves us more than we can ever fully imagine or know, he wants us to talk to him. He wants us to acknowledge when we get it wrong, when we sin. I'm doing it again, aren't I? Not getting it wrong. When we sin, when we offend him, when we upset our God. He doesn't want us to be like the horse or the mule that have no understanding. He wants us to understand. Because, as David goes on, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. David has gone through the process of carrying the burden, through the process of mourning his offense that he's caused to God. And now, and now, He can rejoice and be glad because he is made righteous, as so are you and I when we go through that same process. We are made righteous and we can call ourselves upright in heart because God loves us, because God sent Jesus into the world to teach us and to die for us. And because of that cross, because of that cross, that forgiveness... We don't need to have a sacrifice every week or every month or even every day. No, no, no. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Jesus died on that cross for you and I so that we could have this amazing relationship with God. A God who loves us, who provides for us, who never gives up on us, who never leaves or forsakes us. A God who knows that we're going to sin, we're going to make our our, our mistakes in life and we are going to bring them before him and we are going to mourn them. And then we're going to rejoice in the Lord and be glad. I just want to finish this morning with a wonderful quote from Oscar Wilde. He said, a man's very highest moment is, I have no doubt at all, when he kneels in the dust and beats his breast and tells all the sins of his life. I have no idea at all whether Oscar Wilde had any, um, any concept of the Beatitudes in mind when he made that statement, but my goodness, does it capture the essence of what I'm trying to say this morning. It's good to mourn. It is good to find ourselves on our knees before God. Sometimes sobbing our heart out, sometimes, sometimes just quietly reflecting, but spending time with God, acknowledging our sin, but then not staying in that pit, meeting Jesus there and letting him take our hand and lift us out so that we can stand tall, so we can rejoice and be glad, because our God saves, our God loves, and our God comforts all those who mourn. And that includes you and me and everybody that we're going to meet this week. 
So let's go out there and let's, let's be beacons of good news. As, we, as, as Helen said earlier when she was leading worship, let's shine, let's, let's reflect the glory of God. Let's take it with us and share it with those people out in the world because there is a world full of people who carry burdens of past experiences, past hurts, past relationships, things that they, they know they, 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 they sinned, they got something wrong, they, they offended somebody and they might not have a concept of God But God knows, and if they meet God one day, then they can come before him, they can mourn their sin, and then they can have this wonderful release, rejoicing, being glad before the Lord. We've got a world full of people that don't even know that that option is available, and we've got a church full of people who do. So let's get out there this week and be the difference to the people that we meet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the teachings of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that the depth and the complexity of some of those teachings mean that 2,000 years after they were first taught, we are still grappling with them and still exploring the depth of the meaning. Father, we... We pray for anybody in our midst this morning, whether in this building or watching online or is going to catch up later in the week, who who are mourning, who have lost someone they love or have had a circumstance happen in their life which, which has led them to a state of grief. Father, we pray that they will know your comfort at this time. And Father, for each and every one of us, we pray that you will... Give us teachable hearts, teachable spirits. That in our daily routine, we can find time to share with you, to mourn our sin, to recognize those things that we do that offend you, that hurt you, that sadden you, that grieve you. Lord, we pray that you will encourage us to bring them to you, to seek your forgiveness, to confront the worst aspects of ourselves, but then to take that hand that you offer, be pulled back up out of the pit so that we are standing firm, standing tall, standing proud, rejoicing in our God, just as David did in Psalm 32, rejoicing and being glad and celebrating the love of our God. Father, bless us, we pray, as we seek to take this good news out into the world this week to share the joy of Jesus with those that we meet. Lord, bless us as we go about your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.